greater than. Been looking forward to this series for almost 30 years. We have not been in the book of Hebrews for any of the time that I've been at Calvary, and I've been looking forward to the opportunity to open the book of Hebrews and study it together. It's an important book for us. I'm also very grateful to the worship team, Matt, Dan, Pravi, for simply directing our hearts to Christ. You heard Jesus' name this morning. Guess what we want to be about? We want to be about Jesus, Christ magnified in our life. The book of Hebrews will help us do that. If you have your Bible, let's open together there to Hebrews chapter 1. If you need one, there's one in front of you, and um, it's in the New Testament near the end of your Bible. Hebrews is an important book. It's simply spoken in manuscript to the Hebrews. There's a bit of mystery about the book of Hebrews because we don't know several things about it. We don't know who the author is. Several people asked me before church this morning, who do I think it is? It doesn't really matter what I think (laughs) because God didn't tell us who it is. So I suppose we're not supposed to know. It's recorded and captured for us as a book to the Hebrews, which tells us that the audience was Jewish, and the tone assumes that the readers of this book are Christians from a Jewish community who had converted from strict Judaism to be followers of Christ, the Messiah. They were converted Jews with a significant understanding of the Old Testament, And therefore, in our study of the book of Hebrews, we're going to look at the Old Testament a number of times. And in particular, the Old Testament, by New Testament times, in the Greek-Roman Empire, had been translated into Greek from Hebrew, and that translation is called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And this is referred to numerous times by the author of the book of Hebrews. So perhaps the audience, we might assume, are Hellenistic Jews from a cosmopolitan area within the Roman Empire. We're not exactly sure, but we'll do our best to understand their context. The book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD, for the book refers to the current experience of worship in the temple in Jerusalem, and so it was prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The challenge that we will have for the next 16 weeks or so will be to bridge the gap between 2021 and the first century when the author of the book of Hebrews wrote this book. That's a long time ago. To complicate... The writer writing this somewhere around 65 A.D., and our trying to understand it in 2021 as sophisticated and advanced and wonderful as we think we are. The writer in 65 A.D. goes further back to the early 
years of God's revelation to Abraham and Moses and all of the Old Testament. So we're going, let's see, left to right here, we're going 2021 back to 65 AD, all the way back to the early writings of the Old Testament. We're going to put it together and say, what does it mean for us here? Which is a challenge. Which is why every time we come together, I do want to ask you to pray for your own heart and for mine as we're in this book. Because this book is crucial to understand. And it depends not only on a good talk. It doesn't really demand that much on a good talk. It, it depends upon the Holy Spirit's work. Opening the Bible to ears who want to hear. So part of that's my job and part of it's yours. So what will happen in 16 weeks if we study this book that shows the superiority of Christ if all of us will come together in simple faith and say to God week after week after week, we want to see Jesus. And if we do that, we could be changed. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. That's what I want. That's what I pray for. So we've got to go back 2,000 years. We have to deal with Greek language. Um, this is not a letter particularly. It's actually a sermon. And so it's a sermon that was preached, written out, and then read. And so in this whole book, you'll find exposition of Old Testament texts teaching something, and then you'll hear some exhortation from the writer of the book of Hebrews. So these go back and forth, and it's a little cyclical, and it's a bit repetitive, and some themes are gone back to again and again, but the idea is the Bible's being expounded from the Old Testament here in the New Testament context of 65 AD, and then there's this admonition of what should we do about it. And we always want to ask, what difference does it make if God said this? Like, I hope you don't just come to church week after week and we give some talk and you say, well, that was cool. It was better probably over at the other church where, you know, whatever. But that was, all right, we'll try again next week. No. You listen to the Word of God and say, God, what do you want me to listen to from this? And then I want to listen to it. So what we know from some of this context leads me to ask you a question this morning. And with that, maybe we'll jump off. Have you ever felt like giving up? I mean, really like quitting. Have you ever felt like throwing in the towel and just saying, I'm done? Probably many of us have. I, I fantasized about becoming a hermit last year during COVID. <laughs> I, I wished I could have just retired two years before last year happened. But it's like, it's hard. So we, sometimes we get to the place where we say, I, I'm ready to quit. Hebrews was written to a group of people who were quitting. Some who had left, some who had one foot out the door, who were drifting away from their faith. Because they were suffering persecution and hardship and difficulty. And we'd have to say that the last year was challenging for all of us. And maybe you're in a moment right now that's really challenging. I heard a statistic this week that 90% of executives in companies in the United States are contemplating a change in job. 90%. Why? 
because anything else would be better than what happened last year. And they want to give up. The book of Hebrews was written so that you not give up. Not give up. Got your Bible open? Let's look at a couple verses, okay? Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. The book of Hebrews was written to a group of Christians who were going through a difficult time so that they would not drift away. This is a good word for us in 2021. Chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 at the end. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This book was written to people that they would capture a word from the Old Testament. Hear God's voice and don't let your heart get hard against God. Why do hard times lead us to have hard hearts? It's an important question that we're going to try to answer. Look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We don't want anyone to fall away from their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump over to chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. There the writer of Hebrews says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the same full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. I don't want any of you to be sluggish. Slap yourself in the face now. Okay, no sluggish people at church. For the next 16 weeks. Week 17, you can. Okay? (laughs) Chapter 10, one more. Verse 39. This is all through the text. Verse 39, chapter 10. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we're of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You get the idea? All through the book of Hebrews, things are spoken about realities, and then there's an admonition or a call that says, come on, believe that. Don't shrink back. Don't drift away. Don't let your heart get hardened. Keep your heart soft toward Christ. The day is hard. Difficulties all around us. And the temptation is that you throw in the towel, give it up, or let your heart get crusty toward the things of God. This book was written to say, don't do that. You want to stay with us on this? Okay, let's get into the text. Verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Well, wait. One summary statement, then let me say of everything I said so far. Our endurance in the Christian life is directly proportional to who we think Jesus is and understand what he has accomplished for us. Okay, your endurance as a Christian is directly proportional to who you think Jesus is and what he has done for you. That's the whole purpose because 
the writing of Hebrews is to say of Jesus, He's greater than anything. And this is how verse 1 opens. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We should put verse 2 up too. I was going to come back to it, but verse 2 says, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So put it all together now. In many ways, at many times, in the past, long ago, God spoke to us and our fathers through the prophets, but He's spoken now through His Son. These two opening verses underscore that God is involved with His people. God is a communicator. He wants to speak to His people. And these opening verses indicate that the revelation of God to man, the way in which God reveals who He is, what He's up to, His character, His purpose, His person, He has revealed over time since the beginning. The word long ago is to make us think about Genesis 1 and John chapter 1. In the beginning, long ago. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that God's revelation to us did not begin in Bethlehem. It didn't begin in Palestine, in the Roman Empire. No, God's revelation to us began long ago in many ways, in many times over the history of creation. And God spoke to the prophets, but now He's spoken to us in His Son. The flow of the entire Bible is one that goes from the beginning of the creation and will culminate in the new creation. But Hebrews opens up to say God's a communicator. A lot of people think that God spun the world at best into action and then stood back and say, good luck. A deistic idea that the world is created but God's not involved. That's not what the Bible teaches, but that God has been creating with His world since the very beginning, since the fall, since His own creation, He was there speaking. And the redemptive plan of God through Jesus Christ doesn't begin when the incarnation happened, but when creation happened, all the way back to the beginning. But what you do see is the flow of God's revelation culminating, climaxing in Christ. So maybe I should just say this to begin. Christianity's distinction from all other world religions comes not from our trying to get to God, but acknowledging that God has come to us and He has spoken to us in many ways and in many times. He spoke to the prophets through dreams and direct words and visions and a still small voice, all the ways that God communicated, and we'll look at the Old Testament in ways that He did that. God spoke through the prophets of old, but now through His Son, the author is making a comparison between prophets and Son. Who's greater, a prophet or the Son of the messenger? Answer, the Son. And so the case begins in the opening verses that Jesus is superior to all that came before, superior to every prior message. Next week we're going to look at angels and God's role with angels. Angels were messengers of God. Prophets were messengers of God. And God did that, but now He's spoken through His Son. 
There's a clear distinction between the prophet and the son. The son is divine. He's God's son. And all the New Testament is centered around Jesus Christ. So I love that all of our music this morning sang to him. We are a Christ-centered community because the New Testament is about Christ. And when you think about God speaking in his word, the Old Testament made promises and the New Testament fulfilled them. The New Old Testament pointed to the Son and the New Testament reveals that the Son, he who has seen the Son, finish that sentence. Sorry. He's seen the Father. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So the New Testament is about this. Jesus is all over the Old Testament, but the New Testament culminates with his revelation. Now, if the message of the book of Hebrews is to help us not give up, it's not surprising that the introduction, which has no hello, greeting, salutation, grace to you, the author is, none of that is here. It simply breaks into a dense theological explanation of who is this son. And I want to summarize to you this morning what what I said a moment ago, that the greater your understanding of Jesus, the more secure you're going to be in your life when the world crashes in around you. And the less secure you are in understanding who is Jesus Christ, the more unstable you'll be in your personal and spiritual life. Or to put it another way, when all hell threatens to undo you, can you cling to a certain knowledge that with bedrock certainty you know, I don't care what happens in my life, I know this to be sure about Jesus Christ. And He's my Savior. And if it's true about Him and He's my Savior, I'm good. That's the point. So there are seven things about Jesus in the verses that follow. I don't usually have a sermon with seven points, but if you want to underline in your Bible or circle, I want to show you seven things that are just densely compacted in these opening two verses. And my hope for you, like if I were to say to you right now, everybody look at me, who's Jesus? Son of God. Okay, not bad, good. And what would you do? Could you give me seven things about Jesus? And maybe you never thought about this, but I'm going to give you seven. And maybe now you say, who's Jesus to you? I can tell you exactly who he is. And if you could give all seven of these, it would be so awesome. Because a lot of people think he was uh, revolutionary, changed the world. He's a good teacher. He's kind. He was good to everybody. He even may have done miracles. He was a guru. He transformed the world. All the world thinks about Jesus. He was really cool. No. I mean, yes, but what if you could give seven really clear ideas about Jesus and you could say, this is who he is, because I'm just saying to you, our endurance in the Christian life through difficulty is in direct proportion to what we think about Jesus and what he has done. So, in these last days, he spoke to us by his son. Verse 3, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Could you say that? <laughs> Let's pick it apart. We'll go quickly. But seven things about Jesus. Number one, he is the heir of all things. He is the son of God, and he is the heir of all things. That is to say that from God's perspective, he is the one who is invested with everything from the Father. It is right for the Son to have all honor of the family and all authority. When you have an heir, an heir is the one who represents the family. To do business with the Son means you're doing business with the Father. If you're going to know the Father, you can only know the Father through the Son. He's the heir of all things. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. How do you know the Father? Everybody, it's through the Son. If you had known me, you would have known the Father, Jesus said. John 14, 7. He's the heir. Now by heir, that means that he's going to receive all these things. All things were created through him, as we'll see in a moment, and for him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. To him be glory forever. <clears throat> that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is and how could the Father be happy for all of eternity with all the creation bowing down to Jesus and saying before the Father to Jesus, glory be to you now and forevermore? Under what circumstances would the Father in heaven bide by Jesus receiving all glory, all praise for all of eternity from all creation. He's the rightful heir. He deserves that. The Father's not infringed upon in any way that for all of eternity Christ will be glorified because I and the Father are one. He is the heir. He is the one who will receive all these. And the book of Revelation wraps up with this grand pronouncement that the creation of old is going to be renewed and made into a new creation and all of the kingdoms of this world, we could sing it together, shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. Why? He's the heir of all things. Everything about human history is pointing to Jesus. 
we get drawn into this world and think, what's going to happen next month, next week, next year? What's going to happen in the Middle East? And we get drawn down to all of the travails. And every once in a while, church would be a good place for us all to be together and say, there is a Lord of Lords, a King of Kings, and all of creation and all of history is moving without any possible thwarting of God's plan to the day when He shall reign forever and ever. He's the heir of all things. All of history is moving toward Him. Oh, and we're joint heirs with Him. Like we're connected to Him. Second, through whom He also created the world. He created the world. Now, it's important to know, in our day, I just was talking with my neighbor yesterday about his work on the James Webb Space Telescope. It's amazing. He's so excited about it. It's going out into space. It's going to orbit around the earth 930,000 miles above the earth's orbit. And it's going to look into space. And he is so jazzed that they are going to find the origin of light. <laughs> I wanted to explain to him, but I'm, I'm, I'm pacing myself with him. <laughs> but like I... I I want, I know what happened. The Lord spoke and the world came into order. All things were created by Him and apart from Him there was nothing made that was made. He created all things. He created the world. He created the world and He's redeeming the world. He created you in His image. All things were created by Him. I guess we could all get hung up. Maybe some of you get hung up on how it happened or when it happened, and I get that. That's okay. Do you know that He's the creator of all things? And everything will answer to the creator. I know that about Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I know that's true about Him. The Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing made that was made. He's the creator of the world. Three, He is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Let's just think about that. What do you think He means? Remember, He's writing to Hebrews, and He talks about the radiance of God's glory. What would the early Christian, early Jewish Christians be thinking about the radiance of God's glory. Maybe the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament where the glory of God stayed over the tabernacle. The glory of God that moved with His people. Jesus is the radiance of His glory. And in Christ, He possesses all the glory of God. But he walked 33 years on the world and we never saw his glory like that. Oh no, John said we did see his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw that glory. Where was that? You might look at Matthew chapter 17 where the transfiguration happened there. 
and his face shined like the sun, like suddenly. He and three closest disciples went up to the mountain and he was transfigured before them. And for a brief time, Christ manifested the glory of God and what happened to the others who were around him? On their face. Why? Because suddenly what had been veiled, what had been uh, covered over so that Christ could live among mankind was seen briefly. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light of God, which is why he said, I am the light of the world. But men love darkness more than light. They will not come to the light. That's a spiritual characteristic of the day in which we live, that even though Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, men love darkness rather than light. And if you love the light of Jesus, you should thank God that he opened your heart to know the difference between the light of Christ and the darkness of sin. Every one of us who have come to love Christ should say, God, thank you that you showed me the light of Christ because the God of this world is blinding the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the glorious light of the gospel of Christ. That is happening in our community, and it requires God to break in and let them see that Christ is actually the radiance of the glory of God in himself. A mirror phrase is number four. It simply says that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. The idea is imprinting something so that on a wax you, you put a seal and what is here is the same as here. It's a way of saying that Christ is the exact nature image of the glory of God. The exact expression of the Father's nature. Christ shares the divine nature with the Father. Here, they are exactly the same. Jesus came to be the exact representation of the Father in time and space in his life here, but he is the, uh, the image of the invisible God, and all the fullness of God dwells in him bodily. These two phrases, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, are meant to say clearly that Christ in his essence is fully God fully divine, the second member of the Trinity. So when I say to you, who is Jesus to you? I hope you would say more than a good teacher, more than my buddy, more than my pal, more than my friend. He is a friend to sinners. I'm a sinner, so he's my friend and I'm his friend. Yep. But I can go richer and say that my Jesus is the exact likeness of our Father who is in heaven. He possesses in Himself the radiance of the glory of God that was veiled while He was here, but He possesses it now. He is the exact likeness of the Father who is in heaven, and I know that's true about Him. Five, He upholds all things by the word of His power. That creation we talked about is upheld by him. He holds all things together. It is Christ who holds our planets in place. He keeps the orbit of the earth and, and the axis of the earth and gravity and the laws of physics are held together. Oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. No, 
By the word of his power, he holds all things together. He's powerful enough to keep all of the world together. To control, to preserve, and even to bring to an end, which he's going to do to this world. He's going to bring it to an end and refashion it and new creation. He does that. I know that about him. The Bible says that's coming for him. He, he does that. You got that about Jesus? Everything. And if he holds the world together, what does he do to those who love him? Can we just stop for a minute? Do you believe that Jesus holds the world in order by his power? Okay. Do you think he holds you in his hand? Yeah. So don't give up. <laughs> That's the point. Don't drift. Why? Oh, yeah. He does hold the sun and the moon in their place. I guess he's got me. That's the point. He does that. Six, after making purification for sins. The writer of Hebrews opens up. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He holds all the world together. And after he made purification for sin, almost a passing introduction, but what is that about? That is about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf, his purification for the sins of the world, the work of Christ. Purification refers to the priestly work of Christ, which is going to be the major theme of chapter 9 and 10, and it recalls all the Old Testament sacrificial system that we're going to look at when we get there. It'll be expounded later. But you're in Hebrews, so look at chapter 7 and verse 27 for a second. And of Jesus and his sacrifice, Hebrews 7, 27 says, He has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't have to make sacrifices for himself because he's not a sinner, and he doesn't have to do it again and again because he did it one time for all. He made purification for sin. Now, maybe you came to church today and you're feeling what many of us feel when we go through difficult times is like we have, we created these bad times. A lot of the suffering that we go through, we, we did that. We look and say, ugh, what a bad decision I made. And then we have a sense of shame and a sense of guilt. Excuse me one second. Ashamed of that, but I blew my nose. We have that sense of shame, and, and Jesus said, no, I died for that. Christ died to forgive us our sins. He died to forgive you of your sins. He died to forgive you of your sins. And you might say, well, who says I'm a sinner? We could back up, and there's another conversation that God actually says that. All have sinned, me, you, us, we, all of us. And that's why he came, to make purifications for sins. And if you're here today under a weight of sin, a weight of like, I feel shame, I just want you to know this is the reason he came to welcome you into forgiveness. He made purification for sins. If you come to Christ 
and trust in Him, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. In the back, what do you say to that? He cleanses us from all sin. Don't give up. Come to Him. Come unto me. Seven. And then He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Then He sat down. He sat down. What does that mean? To sit implies ah, done, completion, place of honor. Look where he is at the right hand of the majesty on high. Who can sit at God's right hand? To which of the angels did he say, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool? Only to the son Jesus You know, in the tabernacle system, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were no seats. No priests ever sat down. No high priest had a chair next to the Holy of Holies. It wasn't right to sit there because they were doing it again and again and again. But Jesus made purifications for sins and he sat down. I love that. Why? It is finished. Who finished it? Jesus. Who is this Christ who has spoken to us at the end? It's Christ, better than prophets, better than angels. Jesus is the creator. He's the creator. He's the heir. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the imprint of the nature of God. He holds all things together. He made purifications for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God. So the place of honor where he sits is a place of completion and authority. And we find from Romans chapter 8 that it's also the place where he sits to pray for us there. Who is there to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who now is seated at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Don't give up. That's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. How's that for an introduction to the book? I mean, now I could say grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ, because now you know who Jesus is. Jesus is these things. And you know him. He's in you. You belong to him. He's got you. Don't give up. Don't give up. He's greater than anything else. Don't be drawn away to philosophy. Don't be drawn away to other religions. If you have Jesus, is there anything else you need? Answer? Okay, let's pray together. God, we believe that you have come into the world to speak to us, to tell us a better message, to give us a a deeper, more transformational hope that is an anchor for our soul. And I pray for anyone who's here today who needs the hope of Jesus. Because life has been hard and they've been under a pile and they've felt the weight of the world 
and their own failures perhaps, and today we've gotten a glimpse that you have not been silent, but you have spoken to us what you want us to know about Jesus, and there is no one like him. He truly is. Lord Jesus, you are the King over all kings and the Lord over all lords. You're the Savior of the lost. You're the forgiver of sinners, and we have come to know you. If our faith has been wavering, Lord, I pray that you'll anchor us down. I pray for every young person here who's been tempted to throw in the towel and give up. Oh, God, let us know that what we think about Christ will be a help for us in this moment. And the words that we've said about Jesus, Lord, may they be true truth to our soul today. And help our unbelief. Let us just trust you, God, that you are this. Nothing greater will come after you. So we cling to you by faith. And everybody said, Amen.